Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Hey, welcome to the show. It is Friday, July the 17th, 2020. And a reminder, tomorrow... Red Rock Photography is going to be at Art in the Park in Blowing Rock on Park Avenue. 10 a.m. to 5 a.m. Saturday, July 18th, 2020. Go see my friend Stacy Redman at Art in the Park in Blowing Rock on Park Avenue. Or go to his website, Red Rock Photo NC. I want to thank the patrons of the program. Folks like, for example, Julie and Joseph and JK and Jim and Matthew and Shelly and Greg and David, Catherine, Matthew... James, Paul, I appreciate all of the support. I couldn't do the show without you. That's the truth. Uh, Like, literally, I bought the equipment with your support, (laughs) with your donations. So, uh, yeah, so, like, you are the reason the show happens, and so I appreciate that. Um, Have you heard about the Twitter hack that happened the other day? Uh, Apparently, a Twitter insider, this is according to Vice News, vice.com, A Twitter insider was responsible for a wave of high-profile account takeovers this week. Um, This according to leaked screenshots that got obtained by Motherboard, which is a publication, as well as two sources who took over accounts. So the perpetrators apparently told Motherboard this stuff and gave them proof. Um, On Wednesday, a spike of high-profile accounts, including those of Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Barack Obama, Uber, Apple, and me... Uh, No, I'm kidding, but they tweeted cryptocurrency scams in an apparent attack. The accounts were taken over using an internal tool at Twitter. Wasn't that comforting? So there's a tool at Twitter that, uh, no, I'm not talking about Jack Dorsey. I mean, that's, I'm just kidding. Come on. But it's a tool that apparently allows employees to just take over accounts and post stuff. Twitter has been deleting some of the screenshots of this tool and then is uh, suspending people who are retweeting it, showing the pictures of it, saying it's a violation of their terms of service. What does this have to do with COVID-19? Well, I'm glad you asked. What does it have to do with COVID-19? I will tell you in a minute. First, I'm going to tell you about Mattress Man because, I mean, they're just fantastic mattresses. It's where I got mine. Christy and I got a... uh, king-size memory foam mattress. We love it. We've had it for years. Um, And when we get our next mattress, it's going to be from Mattress Man, too, because uh, they've got all of the best mattresses, and they got great deals. For example, the 000 deal. 000, the triple goose egg, Um, meaning you don't need to put any money down. You don't need uh, to worry about any interest for the first uh, up to two years, 24 months, 0% APR, and you don't even have to worry about making a payment. So zero worries. Maybe it should be the four zero sale. Zero, 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 and zero worries. Zero payments for 90 days. Okay? So go 
take a look at their website, mattressmanstores.com, or walk on into any of their four locations in Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. They ship nationwide, so if you are hearing this in a locale outside of Western North Carolina, first off, howdy. Secondly, uh, you can get the mattress delivered to you. If you are local, they do five-star white glove delivery service. Plus, everybody gets the 120-day comfort guarantee. You really can't lose here. Get yourself a great mattress, for real. Oh, and they also have deals like an adjustable base for free with select mattress purchases and uh, how about a free box spring with the Biltmore Mattress Collection. The Biltmore line by Restonic. These are made in Fayetteville. These are the mattresses in the Biltmore Inn and Hotel. Okay, so these are top quality mattresses. Get a free box spring. And did I mention the the, the shipping nationwide and the five-star delivery service? I think I did. Yeah, I just did. Okay, so experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. My guest now is Catherine Waldron. She is a resident fellow in Nas- of National Security and Cybersecurity Focus at rstreet.org, rstreet.org. And welcome to the program, Catherine. How are you? Hi, I'm great. So happy to be here with you. So tell us first a little bit about uh, your expertise here in national security and cybersecurity and what is R Street and, and, and what do you do for them? So the R Street Institute, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, we're a public uh, research organization, a think tank. We're located here in Washington, D.C. Um, and our goal is to look essentially at policy research, and promote free market and limited effective government. Um, and my team particularly, we focus on national security and cybersecurity. So uh, it's a, uh, that's a pretty limited field, I guess, in today's day and age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, limited. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you have a piece at rstreet.org titled The Care That States Need to Take with Contact Tracing Apps. Um, so first, I guess... A lot of people started asking me about this. I started getting questions about this from family members who were like, hey, I just looked at my phone and there's some sort of a contact tracing app on my phone. And then, of course, it was a family group, you know, text message. And so then everybody's checking their phones and, oh, my gosh, they're (laughs) tracking us and all this. And I had to say, I don't think they're turned on. I think you have to turn them (laughs) on first for that to work. So uh, explain how this all kind of started, because as I understood, like there was an update that went out and these things started getting put into people's phones, right? Okay. So, yeah, you're right that there's been a big panic about are your phones automatically downloading contact tracing apps? And the answer is no. Um, So what happened is back at the beginning of coronavirus, a lot of different countries and and states around the world were looking for new ways to conduct contact tracing, you know, through apps because it's difficult to employ enough people in the middle of a pandemic. And so people were turning to technology and hoping that that would be a way to essentially um, digitalize contact tracing. And as interest in this grew, Apple and Google announced that they were going to collaborate together to essentially build the API, um, which is the software interface um, needed to build a certain type of contact tracing app for your phone. And so what happened is when the latest round of updates went, uh, essentially went live, is that that software was then built into your phone so that you contact tracing apps that were rolled out would have the capacity to then interface with that. However, that's not the same as having an actual contact tracing app on your phone. 
And you're absolutely right that you have to be able to turn this on, either through an app. Um, and so just because the software is on your phone, it doesn't mean that your data is actually being collected. And so what is the purpose of having these apps on people's phones? What's uh, it, it, how, how do they work? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different ways these apps are these apps can work depending on you know what app you're using, where you are in the world. And so generally what happens is these apps um, either collect your location data or they collect your proximity data. So they either track where you have been using GPS location data or they track um, what devices your phone, your device has come in contact with recently using Bluetooth. Most of the contact tracing apps out there use the Bluetooth method because in general, it's con the, con the proximity data um, is considered much less um, invasive when it comes to privacy as opposed to GPS location data. Um, but the idea is that your phone, either either on your phone or in some sort of central data um, database, that they can keep a log of people you have come in contact with. And that way, if you test positive for COVID-19, there will be a digital log of all the people you've come into contact with within a certain number of days. And so those people can be automatically notified, hey, someone you were exposed to essentially has COVID, you might want to get tested. But does that work if, like, if I have the app and I turn it on on my phone and then I get COVID um, and then they look at all of the phones that were near me over the last month or whatever, and um, will they, but do those other people, like if you and I happen to, uh, you know, share a, a subway uh, train ride or something, would they know or would they be able to contact you if you did not opt in? So no, they wouldn't be able to. So the way most of these are going to be designed or have been designed is that you have to have a compatible app on both people's devices um, and they both have to agree um, and to check yes, essentially on, yes, I want my data to be collected. Otherwise, it's not effective. Hmm. So it seems like obviously it's almost like the mask deal where it works if like almost everybody does it. But otherwise, exactly. <laughs> yes. it seems pretty. It seems like it has some limitations. <laughs> oh, it's got a lot of limitations, and you're completely right that one of the biggest limitations with this is getting a sufficiently high percentage of the population to buy in. Um, and that's part of the reason so many people are concerned about privacy because a lot of people are concerned that you know if these apps aren't designed with privacy protections in mind people are going to be very skeptical and they're not going to be very likely to download these apps. And if you don't download these apps um, in a sufficiently large number, then they're completely ineffective. Yeah. Another concern people have is like, what do you do if different states build different apps that essentially aren't talking to each other? So suppose you live in one state, but you do your grocery shopping and like across the border um, and you expose people there or you are exposed to someone there who has COVID-19. Um, are those apps going to be able to talk to each other or essentially are you not going to get a notification because those apps were not compatible? 
So you you mentioned Apple and Google, and they put these things into their uh, into into the software, I guess. And you know, forgive me, I'm not a tech person, so I'm probably going to say uh, many many words and descriptions that are wrong. But um, they uh, but so Apple and Google, you said they design these things, they put them into the phones, they have to be turned on. But as I understand it, reading your piece, there are there are separate apps that I guess what piggyback off of the code that those companies put in. So like, so states can create their own apps essentially. Yes, exactly. So the Apple Google approach is actually just one of a wide variety of different ways to build apps. So there are people who are building apps completely unrelated to the Apple Google software. Um, But even for states that do want to have apps that use the Apple Google software, um, it is not in and of itself an actual app. So they work with state officials to build an app um, that uses the software, but it's, it's each state has to build their own. So, and, and therein lies some of the, uh, well, I guess I should say another layer of privacy concerns because uh, you've got these states that are going to be in development of apps. And as far as I know, like states don't do a lot of app development. I mean, maybe I'm wrong on that, <laughs> but when I think of apps, I don't think of state government. But um, so in, in your piece, you talk about the Dakotas. Tell folks what happened in the Dakotas. So, yeah, the Dakotas are, I think, a really good example um, of an app that was rolled out probably a little too quickly. And so what happened was North Dakota was one of the first states to roll out a contact tracing app. Um, it actually wasn't built with the Google Apple um, software. Um, it was because it was built and rolled out beforehand. Um, and what happened is they built an app, they rolled it out, and they actually had a pretty good privacy policy in place. Um, but the way the app was built users location data was accidentally shared with an outside company known as Foursquare. And so um, they're a marketing company. And so what happened is all this over like 200 people's like personal information was accidentally shared uh, with this marketer. Um, and they say they discarded the data. It's, it's not quite the same as, you know, had it been breached by like some sort of hacker or malicious actor, but nonetheless, like the sloppiness with which it was rolled out, like this should have been reviewed by state officials much more, rigorously. Um, it actually should have been reviewed by Apple since it's in their store. Um, really, I think just raises alarm bells for state officials who are considering, you know, rolling out their own apps, um, which is if you roll it out too quickly, if you don't put the appropriate um, privacy uh, controls in place, both in terms of like policy, but also what actually happens, um, it can really backfire. And that can really erode trust when it comes to government officials. Right. And it's already a product that inherently is going to raise suspicions among civil libertarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I like I saw I I have not turned it on. I haven't downloaded an app precisely for these reasons because, like, I remember uh, this was now twenty years ago down in South Carolina when they sold all of our. Uh, driver's license photos the state sold our photos for like a penny a piece mm-hmm. uh, and I wasn't really a big fan of that so like I'm very <laughs> concerned about this kind of uh, about these kinds of apps that are going to be collecting all of this loca- uh, location data or and, and well I guess I can ask you this is that even all that they collect is there more data that they're collecting than simply just oh this person was at this location at this time so it depends on the app in question so different apps um use different types of data. So if you are if you are creating an app based off of the Google Apple software, then actually you cannot collect um, location data. That was one of the rules that Apple 
and Google decided that they weren't going to use GPS location data, which is much more sensitive. They were only going to use Bluetooth proximity data, in which case your phone just registers for other devices. Uh, your they it was essentially near within like a certain amount of time um, and a certain proximity. And okay. so that is generally considered to be a little less sensitive. Um, however, you know, depending on what app you're using, if they're not basing it off the Google Apple software, um, then it may be collecting more data. A lot of state officials find that appealing because then they, they like the idea of using location data to track maybe where outbreaks are. Yeah. And so I was trying to figure out what is the appropriate balance between, you know, wanting officials to have the data that will help them when it comes to um, COVID-19, but also understanding that, you know, people's privacy, it really is at stake here. And also like what sort of precedent for this, you know, set forth, like the scenario you, you uh, just explained in regards to like selling uh, driver's license photos, like what sort of precedent could using these surveillance apps uh, use for like future scenarios? Yeah, because one of the one of the the lines I heard um, in the in the rise of the tech industry and in, in this tech age was if you don't know what the product is, you're the product. And <laughs> right, and so like I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, okay, they're collecting data, and I understand there's a there's a great value to it. Like I think everybody would agree <laughs> that if you're trying to trace back um, a, a pandemic, an outbreak of some kind, and say, okay, well. You know, who was patient zero? Who brought it? Who did they come in contact with? So you're then able to warn other people and try to contain that kind of an outbreak. I think there's, there is value to that. Um, but what's the cost, right? Like, what's the trade off to get there? And then what happens to the data at some point down the road? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it does make me feel a little bit better about the Bluetooth stuff because that it seems pretty limited. What they, mm-hmm. what somebody could actually do with that, but again, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So maybe somebody could take that data and I don't know, mine it for all sorts of stuff um, that I wouldn't want them to. Um, and this is all; these are just the concerns so far that we've covered. These are just concerns with legitimate operators, right? Like these are like mm-hmm. government and third party, like Foursquare. They're a pretty big name. I've heard of them. Um, this isn't even we we haven't even touched on like the hackers side of this, the illegitimate yeah. use of this data. So how do you guard against that? stuff well i think you bring up a really good point and also um it's important to understand i think this is maybe the the difficulty for a lot of people is trying to figure out with all these different types of contact tracing which ones are more safe from a Mm. technological point of view than others and so one thing as you touched on is what type of data are they doing and so you know relying on bluetooth as opposed to gps location data um the data is a little less sensitive so that's one way in which you might view it as safer because there's less um, sensitive data available but I think the other, another major component is, you know, where is this data being stored and how is it being stored? So one aspect of the Apple Google software is that the data is stored on your phone instead of in a centralized uh, database. And so this was actually one of the sort of major debates that was arising in the policy arena about contact tracing apps um, globally, which is, is it better to have all your data stored in some sort of centralized government database or is it better to have a decentralized approach that keeps the data on your phone and so apple and google have taken the stance that they think it's better from a privacy point of view to keep it on your phone because it certainly um it would be a lot harder for hackers um to put that data together if they have to you know hack individual phones as opposed to just a centralized database um, and then another way another important thing is to consider is is that data being encrypted um is it like 
easily accessible or is this being encrypted in some way? Um, how long is the data being stored? Is it being deleted? I think in the Google Apple uh, software, the idea is that the your data will be deleted after 14 days. Hmm. Um, so every 14 days, uh, the data will be deleted. It's not connected to your name. It, you'll have an encrypted, unique um, sort of digital identifier that will actually change on a regular basis. Um, and so having um, security controls in place like that will make it much, much harder for hackers and other criminals and bad actors to get into your phone. Um, but we've certainly seen all sorts of cyber criminals trying to utilize um, coronavirus for their own gain. We've seen people, um, I think it was in the UK, uh, cyber criminals sent out um, notifications to people in conjunction with um, that they were masquerading as UK health officials trying to to say, hey, you you're um, you were identified as being notified for being exposed to coronavirus, and then trying to send them to a fake website where they would have to like enter in additional personal information. And so things like that are really really dangerous to people who might accidentally give away personal information that could lead um, hackers to access you know banking information or, or other highly sensitive information. So is anybody that you're aware of doing this well? So we really don't have any success cases on the on the, a large scale yet. Hmm. Um, now, to be fair, a lot of things are early. And I also think a lot of states who were initially very, very excited about contact tracing have kind of shied away um, because there's been a lot of concerns about privacy. There's also been a lot of concerns about how effective it will be. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, you need a large percentage of your population to adopt um, apps in order to make it really, really effective. And so we have yet to, I think, really see a wide, in a wide scale adoption of contact tracing apps really anywhere. Um, but then you also have to ask, like, are the people who are using the app the people who are maybe most at risk? Yeah. Um, so people who are at risk, you know, maybe they are um, populations that are older or populations that are more economically disadvantaged. They might be less likely to have a smartphone. And so the people who are downloading the apps may not actually be the people who are most at risk um, of coronavirus. Hmm. Um, I also suspect that when, as the uh, the spread, the community spread and the numbers were sort of stable for the last few months, that people didn't really see the need. Uh, maybe folks up in New York may have been more, uh, I don't know, incentivized to adopt some of these apps, but now maybe not so much because, you know, like this past weekend, they just had zero deaths. And so maybe they think they're mm -hmm. past the worst of it. Now you've got other states that are seeing rises in case numbers and fatalities. And so maybe now there's going to be some, uh, you know, some rush to, to do something along these lines because they feel like it's more of an imperative. I definitely think you're right that like, as we see a resurgence in different states of cases, there's going to be much, much more pressure for state governments to do something. Um, and that is both a good and bad thing. Like it's, it's good that, that state governments are looking at potential solutions, but as we saw in the case of the Dakotas, um, if state governments in their rush to essentially do something, roll out an app that is essentially not ready, um, it could be really, really damaging in the long run. 
Uh, Catherine Waldron, Resident Fellow, National Security and Cybersecurity at rstreet.org uh, rstreet is the website. Um, and is there anything else that we have not covered on this that you think is important or interesting for people to know before we let you go? You know, I would just leave people with this thought, which is it really pays to do a little research in terms of like um, the technology behind contact tracing. I know it's difficult for a lot of people who aren't technologists. and I'm, I'm not a technologist myself. I've come from a policy background, but it really matters to consider, you know, in terms of how these apps are built, who is looking at your data, who has, like, how are they built? How long will they have access to your data? Um, because these things really, really impact the strengths or weaknesses of each individual contact tracing app. Thank you, Catherine. We appreciate your time. Thanks for spending it with me. Thank you. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house, but you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and at oldgrouch.com. Joining me now is Brian Jodis. He is the Executive Vice President at Parents for Educational Freedom NC. That website is pefnc.org. And welcome, Brian. How are you? Pete, great to be with you. Doing well. Hope you are as well. I am. I am. So uh, first, uh, I usually do this with uh, uh, people who are with organizations that uh, are sort of North Carolina focused, but they may not be aware of the work that you guys do. What does PEFNC do and what do you do for them? Yeah, that's great. So Parents for Educational Freedom in North Carolina, you know, we really try to think of ourselves as the source for school choice in our state. We've been around since 2005. And in that time, uh, we've just served as an advocate for families, we served as a voice for families, and we served to help empower families 
of educational options. You know, we really exist uh, to engage at the grassroots level, uh, to educate North Carolinians about their educational options, and then to empower them with some choice in education. And so we're a school choice organization. We believe that, you know, families across our state should have access to the school that is the best fit for their child, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their income. And so we work real hard every day to, to lift up families and empower them with some choice in education. I've had the, the privilege of being with the organization since 2016. Uh, came on as our uh, vice president of communications and outreach and then have shifted into uh, the role of executive vice president. And so I'm really tasked with ensuring, you know, the bulk of what we do externally facing, right? And, you know, from a communication standpoint, from work that we do at the legislature and then, you know, work that we do to really lift up family stories and voices and, and share it. You know, one of the best things I get to do is, you know, uh, is travel our state. And obviously that's been a bit limited here over the last few months, but travel our state and, and share family stories about how school choice and educational options have really uh, lifted up their children and their families. And so it's been a great, great privilege, privilege for me to do that. And I got to believe that this is a unique opportunity for organizations such as yourself and school choice advocates. If people want to see uh, sort of a, a really clear distinction uh, between uh, people who are, you know, anti-choice and those who are pro-choice like this. Mm-hmm. It seems like this, the current environment with COVID-19, it seems like this is a really clarifying moment for you guys to make your case. I think that's a great point. You know, I think uh, this pandemic has, has shed light on some inadequacies really across spectrums. But one thing it showed was that, you know, there are some gaps in education. And, you know, one thing that we've always believed is that parents and families know their children best. They are best suited to to make major education decisions for their children. They're best suited to to know what environment is the best fit for their children. You know, again, that's what we've always believed, and I I believe that as well. So, you know, parents, families are in the best position to really know what their children need to thrive and, and what kind of environment is the right fit for them. And then, you know, the world got tossed on its head back in March, and you know, we left schools across our state, and nobody's returned yet. Uh, and families were thrust into distance learning and, and, you know, some quite frankly waited weeks to find out what they were going to be able to do, you know, kind of waited uh, for these systems to, to, to get things going. Some only had to wait a few days So families that were homeschooling said, Hey, we got this, mm-hmm. you know, we've been doing this uh, for years, but I, I think you're right. I think it has shed more of a light on the fact that, you know, we've got to have additional options available for families, um, you know, I think if you look at what happened on July 1st, so in our state, in North Carolina, if you're going to homeschool your students for the coming year and you haven't registered as a homeschool, on July 1st, you have to register for that intent to homeschool. This year, the website that handles those uh, requests crashed for like five days uh, because by the thousands, families must have been going there. Uh, and we've seen an incredible homeschool surge across North Carolina over the last four or five years. But I think this has, you know, it is, it is, um, I think it's uh, woken some people up. I think it's uh, shed some light on some things. And I think it's, it's given people a real opportunity to sit back and say, hey, let's really kind of fully explore, you know, what environment uh, is the best fit uh, for our child. And what we say is, you know, we, ought to, we ought to not stand in the way of that, you know, and, and we shouldn't have someone zip code dictate, you know, what they get access to. And we definitely shouldn't have their income dictate what they get access to, you know, if the school that is the best fit for them is outside of something they can afford. You know, we've done great things in North Carolina to help families, special needs families, low-income families, 
find access to those schools. And that's something I'm pretty proud of that we've done here. It's one of the aspects of K-12 uh, government education systems, this this industry, that I think is really underappreciated. When you sit back and examine all of the different aspects of our lives that are controlled and dictated basically by a school building, right? Where that building is then determines where do you buy your house, how long your commute is, do you even take the job because of the commute, right? All of these factors and then, you know, you're, you're scheduling for vacations, you're scheduled for free time in the evenings and what time is dinner and Everything sure. gets focused around the K-12 school, whatever school you're going to, your kids are going to at that time. Uh, and then to see it shut down and everybody who is dependent, I mean, heck, you know, you got a lot of kids that were dependent on schools for food, uh, for, for meals. Yeah, nutritional in their day. services. Yeah. yeah. Special, needs, special needs children who, who, uh, who get critical support. Uh, at those schools, I think you're exactly right. I, I refer to it as the libertarian prophecy because, like, the, the libertarians keep saying, like, do not rely on government to fulfill all of these promises because the day is going to come when That's they can't. Right. And it's like, and here it okay. is, and and they're just like, we're closing everything down. And uh, what's inter- been interesting to see also is that people who generally have kind of taken a dim view, let's say, on homeschoolers, <laughs> that uh, that now all of a sudden it's they're been all quite on a board. Shift, hasn't yes. <laughs> It's been quite, it's been quite, it's been, again, I mean, the fact that, you know, the state website that takes in those inbound requests to homeschool their children, and I don't have the date on it because it's not publicly available, but gosh, man, I got to think it's been by the thousands. People have been going to that to fill out their intent to homeschool their children because they're just not comfortable in the current climate to send them back. You know, we recently just released a survey that we did of over 800 parents across our state. It's at pefnc.org slash distance learning. And 60% of the people that we surveyed said they, they, they want to have some sort of continued distance learning plan. Now, mm-hmm. some people are very eager to get their children back into school. And I think there are wonderful social benefits to that and educational benefits to having children in their schools. Again, in the school of their parents' choice would be the ideal thing. But, you know, it's been a, it's been a very challenging time. I mean, look, we've got 1.4, almost 1.5 million students in our state who are educated in traditional public schools. That, that's a very good fit. For, for many of those students. What I'm saying, though, is that it just shouldn't be the only fit. And I think there is a real problem, Pete. Like, there is an ideological divide in our state and across our country. And there is this education elite decision-making class who, trust me when I tell you, they do believe they are the only ones suited to educate children. And while they should be a strong option, right, we should do everything we can to ensure our public schools have the resources they need. Teachers are paid what they deserve to be paid. But it doesn't mean it's the only option. Right. And, it, and it, what it means is that we got to find ways to help families navigate this system because, man, it can be cumbersome. I mean, we're seeing it right now with as these plans are being released. Families have a lot of questions. What does plan B look like? Are we doing plan C here? What's this virtual academy thing that we're hearing about? So families have a lot of questions. We need to help them navigate those options and ultimately find ways to put their child in the environment that's the best fit for them. And if they're saying, hey, you know what, I'd really like my student to be in a smaller class size or in a values or even a religious-based institution, let's find some ways to help them do that. Or if they look for a charter, or like you said, on the homeschool front, I think there's a lot of people turning their heads and being like, well, you know what, we had our youngsters home for a couple months. We really feel like we can handle this. Yeah. Let's do it. Or if they're really just not, listen, if they're just not comfortable because of where we're at in the cycle of COVID-19 right now, I can understand that as right. well. And they want to keep their kids home. 
at least for a year, right, and see how it works for them. Right. Yeah, and that's the and this is the the thing about the beauty of the free market system and competition, which is that for whatever uh, reasons people are making their choices, they they have the freedom to do so, and the way that yeah. the market can respond to all of those different choices from all of those different people, it's so much bigger than a uh, than you know a one size fits all. Uh, model that has been sort of the standard status quo for us as a society for a hundred years, and with the yeah. disruption now, you got parents they are looking for right stability, some con- some consistency, some predictability, and we're n- they're not getting that from the governor. Yeah. Um, and I understand that why, like he can't say what the virus is going to be, you know, in another six months from now. But if you're looking at it and saying, okay, so I can send my kid. And I'm going to go, and they're going to go to the school rather for uh, for two days out of five. Uh, but then that could all get blown yeah. up too. And meanwhile, you're trying to schedule your work schedule because again, you had to take the job, and your spouse had to take a job in order to afford the house in the neighborhood near the school that you wanted to get them to. So all of these decisions, it, it shatters this illusion. I think that's what that's why I think there's a great clarifying moment right now, and that people are saying, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and homeschool my kid, or uh, I wish my my preference would have been that we had more vouchers or scholarships, more freedom to choose decades ago, because you would have had schools that are way further along in their development now, and you would have had way more options, I think, for students and parents to choose from. You bring up a great point. And and let me ask you this, like when you hear about one versus the other, what what side is it always coming from? Like when, when there's sort of a tax on school choice or you know, these voucher programs, these unaccountable voucher programs. I hear the governor, Governor Roy Cooper, talking about, you know, these unaccountable private school choice scholarships, and we have no way of knowing if these students are getting the education they deserve. And then when we talk to families about it, they're like, well, hold on a minute. No way of knowing. Unaccountable. Like, my school's accountable to me. Right. I get my son's and daughter's test grades all the time. I can walk into that school anytime and ask for these things. If anything, Maybe there's more accountability there. So I get baffled on that. And then the one size versus other, it, just, it constantly feels like, you know, these options that we're fighting so hard for because we hear from the parents who benefit from it. This mom, I sat down with the mom uh, a couple months ago, and she said her son, quote, was suffocating in the system he was in and nobody would listen. Hmm. Man, that's like, that's really powerful, right? And then she hears the governor say unaccountable. Uh, private school program that she's a part of. And she just, I mean, she's like, what are you talking about? Come talk to me. Right. So you're right. That one size fits all thing doesn't, doesn't really work. The status quo thing doesn't work. And then I think people do get very frustrated. I'll give you an example. Right. So I'm in Wake County. You watch the Wake County public schools, Twitter account yesterday. Uh, and this is, we're right on the, on the, you know, I don't want to date us, but you know, we're right on the end of, you know, finding out what these plans are going to look like for going back to school. Right. And a student asks, a student asks, hey, are, I think he's asking, you know, some AP courses going to be available? And they reply with a very snarky, yes, 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 Garfield falling into his, uh, you know, his bed, you know, because they're just so exhausted, I guess, from having to answer these kind of questions. <laughs> you think that's helping at all? You think that's helping in any of this? Right? Uh... Like, just meet your students where they're at and give them the resource. So, so people get very frustrated and they kind of get fed up with that. And, and what does it continue to do? That's one little small kind of joke in this in grand scheme of things, but it does kind of show that you're more connected and worried about the system than the individual end user, the student. And I think the beauty of school choice is it prioritizes the individuals, the students, and the families 
over these systems that that in some cases have grown way too big. Right. Well, because it's we know the model works because the model works everywhere else. This this being a competitive model where it induces the provider of the service to compete uh, for the customers, and you don't get more customers by being jerks to them, right? <laughs> it's just, I mean, generally speaking, I don't know what the business model might be. It's funny, it's funny when Wendy's trolls McDonald's because they're going against each other. Right. Like, okay, I'll give you that, but not in this situation. Right. It doesn't work. And you're right. Like, could you imagine if, you know, I'll compare. Like, if a private school reacted that way, uh, I mean, a parent could yank their kid out in a hot second, right? That's the beauty of the way that it works. If they're unsatisfied with what they're getting, you know, and if they've got options, you know, th- their feet will do the talking. Right. The freedom to fail is vital, and public schools don't have that. If a failing school is deemed to be failing, they get, you know, more money, um, <laughs> usually. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they'll get some commissions and some, you know, task forces and such, but uh, the school doesn't get closed down, right? The school continues to operate. There's never yeah. any ramifications. And, and, yeah, and you're seeing, I mean, look, we're having real, we are having real conversations across our country right now that we should be about much-needed reform. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, th- this is, this, these are real conversations that need to be happening. Let's have them in education as well. You want to talk about equity. You want to talk about equal access. You know, when, when a scholarship program like, so in North Carolina, we have the Opportunity Scholarship Program. It's designed to help low-income families get uh, scholarship money for their child to attend the private school of their choice. And it's helping white, black, brown, Asian. I mean, it's helping all kinds of families in our state, right? It's doing a great, great service for many families. But yet there are some folks who want to stand in the way of that. How can we have a real equity conversation? How can we have real equal access conversation when you want to stand in the way of access? In education, that to me doesn't fly. I, I just, I, we're not for it. And we're going to fight against it in what we do at our organization because we hear from the families again that are lifted up by this. We're trying to make these choices, and it's like, how can you say you want to grant people choice in all these walks of life? Yet when it comes to education, you want to hold them in. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. And I, I, I think there is, and I know I'm, I'm citing a lot of free market principles and stuff, and, and so I guess maybe public education officials that might be listening to this will have no idea what I'm talking about. But the perceived value uh, proposition here between uh, a private school uh, family or a charter school family or uh, homeschool family, someone who's using opportunity scholarships, right? Let's say that the the child is getting the exact same education at whatever choice they made with whatever uh, you mm-hmm. know scholarships they made vouchers whatever uh, they're they're getting the exact same level of education that they would get in the traditional public school in their neighborhood right but the perceived value yeah. is much greater over at their choice school and for the people in the K twelve operation they don't understand that perceived value is in fact value right like that people are getting they're getting some non-tangible benefit from believing that they've made a good choice and they're getting a good education if someone does not have that perceived value in a k-12 operation then 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 what are they left with right and the folks who are promoting the k-12 side of it it seems like they don't want there to be any perceived value in anywhere, any other operation except theirs. And it's just like, yeah. it's it's unrealistic. It's actually irrational to, to be trying to say that like, oh, you can't get like what we're offering here. Well, okay, well then let's compete. Well, no, we can't compete, right? Let's not compete. Because if we compete, we're afraid we might yeah. not win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's this idea of having to beat 
something down if it's opposite, you know, or if it's different than what you are. I mean, it's, it's sort of a monopoly kind of view to it. And again, man, like, I can't stress this enough. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids in our state who are getting the education that their families want in the traditional public school where they live. That's a good thing, right? Like, we, that, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. Right. I think that system needs to be reformed some, and I think it can happen through choice. But, but you're right. I mean, there is uh, this sort of monopoly viewpoint to it. And that's why I'm talking about prioritizing systems over families. You've gotten so big that you can't cede an ounce of, of perceived control to, to someone else. And, and you really do. Like ideologically, there's a real divide in those. And I, I, again, this education elite decision making class who truly believes they should be the only option. Now, is that the majority of people? No. I think it's a small group, right, that runs this thing that believes that. Because I don't think teachers think that. I think they've got the best interest of their children. I think there are principals across our state who are looking to work hard every single day. But I think there is control in the system that sets up to prioritize that that system survives. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, if you see any, right, if you see any of that control to these other options, it's perceived as, oh, we're going to lose. We're losing, we're losing resources. We're losing money. No, the dollars are allocated to, to educate that child. That should be the top priority. Right. Well, yeah, you, but the, the, that's why they fought so hard against vouchers and choices because it is a threat because more people will see it as a viable option and then they lose their political power. And if they lose political power, um, yeah, then they're, they're not worth much, um, in the grand scheme of things, and this—it's one of the. I mean, one let of the me great... ask you this: why, yeah. why, why would why, why would Governor Cooper take a program that's educating twelve thousand two hundred fifty-three kids from six to seven thousand families in the school of their choice, and and relentlessly attack it? Say it's an expense we should stop in our state. I felt better uh, eliminating the funding. You know, again, there's no way of knowing if these if these students are getting the education uh, they need. But wh- why would you do that? I don't understand that. For it must it, be some. Uh, calculated yeah i can tell you but i just i i can answer that for you So why do that why would he do that because he needs the the base of voters that the ncae represents um in order to he needs them to be allies and to motivate them and to keep them on his side so they go out and protest in the streets for him well i think it's disingenuous and i think it discredits those families who are benefiting from choice. And I think it almost to an extent disenfranchises their vote. Mm-hmm. If you're saying that, you know, look, I've done the calculator risk. I'm going to just re- attack these programs uh, to shore up this base over here. Uh, I just, I, I, I think that's very disingenuous. Well, and you know this as well, which is really interesting is that another part of the democratic party base is African-Americans, obviously, and African-Americans by polling, they are on board with vouchers and opportunity scholarships and school choice, like more so than than other racial groups, right? Like they really support yes. school choice, and yep. yet their political leadership yep. in, does in not. A, in, a, in all in all polling, not just nationally, but even in the state of North Carolina, uh, the the African American demographic uh, polls the highest as it relates to favorability to school choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, uh, that's absolutely it's absolutely correct. Uh, and the data backs that up. And so to fly in the face of that, again, to me, it's just, you want to, let's have some real equity conversation. This is what families are telling us. You know, this is not just me saying this. This is what we're hearing. It's one of the we're other. demanding equal access to the school that, you know, like choice for thee. 
but not for me. Right. What's that all about? Right. Rich people are always going to be able to have choice. And this is, so this is for everybody else. And it's one of the great ironies also mm-hmm. is that one, they rely on the teachers union uh, to stay motivated for their you know political ambitions. But the irony here is that teachers could actually good teachers, I should say, could command better salaries and better working conditions uh, with a more mm-hmm. open and uh, free system because you would have options to go to many other different schools and you would be able to leverage that if you're the best math teacher in the county, you would have instead of, you know, one district that would be trying to compete for you, right? you would have, okay, maybe yeah. a charter and maybe a private school, but you would now have maybe a dozen schools that would be competing for you in that county. Uh, and teachers really, they, 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 they kind of hamstring themselves on the, on the pay issue here um it's one of the ironies of again well, hooking th- your wagon to one party yeah and you know again for us at least you know the way our organization looks at things is you know we, we really try to understand the why of all of this so you know why are families making these educational decisions i think what's lost in the conversation is, is, is understanding that on the contrary to what you just said why are some teachers taking smaller salary positions mm-hmm. to go teach at charter or private schools, perhaps for the freedom and flexibility that might come with it to be able to teach directly to their classroom. Mm-hmm. But you just, you got to be able to understand that. And I think you don't, many folks in this system, right? This educational system, this elite class, they just, they don't want to, they don't want the answer because it's going to fly in the face of, the narrative of give us all the control. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not teachers, really. It's not principals across our state. We have great public schools in North Carolina that do an incredible public service to educate children in our state. But there is a controlling force in the system that, that does not want to explore that why. I mean, look, in North Carolina, over the last three, four years, we've seen three makes and models of schooling that have been on the increase in enrollment. We've seen one on the decrease. The increase is public charter, private, and homeschool. Mm-hmm. Ask them why. You ask them why, you might be able to understand, and maybe you can reform your system by listening to what they say and, and, and coming up with something that is more in line with what they're looking for. That could happen. Right. So what? Yeah, some of, to your point about teachers taking a pay cut right now, uh, I would submit it's because there aren't a lot of competitors to try to woo them away. If you had more competition, you probably would have better uh, leverage. But uh, to your point, yes, I know sure. teachers, they take lower pay to go work in better conditions. And those better conditions can be, you know, safety related. It can be uh, that you, you te- you're you teaching a class of kids that actually want to be there and their parents are involved, involved enough because they took active measures to send the kid there. Um, and uh, also that uh, they don't have to deal with all of the uh, the BS administrative stuff. And I've always mm-hmm. viewed teaching as more art than science, right? Like it is, it is a skill. It is an art form and good teachers are worth, you know, six figures. But uh, I've always said, I don't want to pay the bad ones. Yeah. I don't want to pay the bad ones the same amount. And this is one of the beauties of a a free system was that you would have any, if you've got a bad policy, let's, let's do bad policy. That policy now affects an entire school district and it's going to impact what thousands of kids, maybe hundreds of thousands over the years. If you have one school, with a bad policy. It only affects the kids going through that one school. There, there's a diffusion that occurs when you have more freedom of choice in education that uh, that helps act as a sort of governor on bad policies, bad teachers, and bad operations. You know, I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, when you have these accountability conversations, you know, I think 
a lot of times it comes down to, you know, that school level accountability. You know, what one positive is a bunch of positive, but one of the positives we're seeing right now as it relates to reopening schools or, or even finding out what's the best way to educate children during this pandemic as we're still going through this thing is one thing we are seeing at least is some level of additional control given to these county systems, right? So you can do these two plans. Right. I preferably would have liked to see them be able to pick between all three if a school system thought that would be the best fit for them. Mm-hmm. But at least they're giving them some level of school autonomy. And that's what we've been saying from the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a major reason why people love charter schools, right? Because decisions are being made at the school level. They still get public school feel, resources, but decisions being made at the school level. Mm-hmm. That gives you the chance to, to really kind of hone in and mold that school, you know, in and around those students. And you're creating the environment that's the right fit for them there versus look, things are different. Wake County, where I'm at, is a huge county. Sometimes on a bad weather day, northern Wake County is totally different than southern Wake County. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to take those, you know, those adjustments, adjustments into place and look for opportunities, I think, to give, like, to your point, more local level control, school level control, some autonomy, classroom level control for a teacher. I think those are keys to, to some success here. Brian Jodis is the executive vice president at Parents for Educational Freedom, North Carolina, PEFNC.org. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think is important or interesting to note that we haven't already covered? I would say, you know, if families are looking for information related to school choice, please come check us out, PEFNC.org. I would love to also mention we've got a great uh, tool, 100% free. It's called NC Schools Around Me. So ncschoolsaroundme.com. You go in there, you plug your address in, and it pops up all the public schools, all the charter schools, all the private schools in a 10-mile radius of where you live. Please go visit that if you're having any questions about you know, maybe what other options might be around with you. You can email us at info at PEFNC.org. We've got a team of parents, literally parents on the ground, uh, ready to help you uh, navigate uh, these waters and in these uncertain times. If you need extra help, please let us know. But I would definitely tell people, go check out ncschoolsaroundme.com. See what's available. Uh, you know, in this time that we're in right now, you know, find out what options are out there. You know, what is what does this strategy look like at this school versus this one? Uh, and if we can be of any help, please, by all means, reach out. Pete, just greatly appreciate the chance to, to talk about this with, with a little air, right? a little bit of breath. We're able to talk and have a nice right. nice conversation here, which I think is important. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Consider becoming a patron of the program. Get exclusive content and cool stuff. Thank you very much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.